I've got much to share with you today. We're going to finish up what we started last week. And, but before I do that, I want to just share something that happened this week with you in, in a way that our church is involved in our community. And I want you to be praying about this because there are many of us that have been praying for our city for a long time. Not just for revival, because that is, you know, when you pray for revival, you just, no one really knows what that means, right? We get excited, we, we love God, maybe some people get saved. There's, everyone has their own definition of what revival is. We've not been praying for revival, so to speak, but we have been praying that God would move in our churches in a way that only He can. And in that prayer over the last few years, we are beginning to see some very real fruit happening in our city. And I, I cannot overstate how important I think this is for us moving forward. And as we've been moving in that direction, seeing God doing something and seeing the the church starting to come together um, that we ourselves are going to be a part of in these coming months, something unexpected happened uh, just, just a few weeks ago. And that was that some of us that were also praying in this direction had the opportunity to come together and begin to work on one of the most divisive issues in our nation right now. And that is the separation of the church by race. And so as you look through our city and and as you look through our auditorium, uh, we are for the most part a very uh, monogamous congregation. And there it is that way throughout our city. And it's that way in, in many different racial contexts, not just in white. And so we, we had several coming together saying, what would it look like for the church to work on this together, for us to stop being separated by race? And so Ken, who was up here just a few minutes ago, and I had the opportunity to go and be a part of a, a, a kind of a pilot program opportunity where we brought 30 pastors together, 15 white, 15 black, to be in a room to talk about race and about God. And so this is a four-week process that we're going to be doing. This was the first week, and then we'll continue for three more weeks. I want you to be praying for that, because in that room are people that are hungry to be the church, that want to look beyond all of the things that divide us. Culturally, there are a lot of challenges to this, and our hope is not that we do this thing And then the thing was done, and we pat each ourselves on the back and say, look at this thing we did. The hope is that we begin a change in our city, that the church actually functions as a whole body. Because we at Journey, we are a body, but we're just a piece of the bigger body of Christ. We are not the whole thing. And so I am very excited for what God is doing This has all come together very quickly, but those who are involved are very passionate about seeing this happening. In the next few months, as this continues to build, there's going to be opportunities for us as a church to be involved. And that could mean anything from coming together for a meal with other churches to some Bible studies also focused on, you know, healing the racial divide between us and getting to know each other, learning about each other, becoming comfortable in an area that you may or may not be comfortable in, but something that's going to be ongoing. So I am very excited about this. I want you to be praying about it. And as I I really don't know what's going to happen with this other than this is, this isn't the first time something like this has happened in Chattanooga, but it's been a long time since something like this has happened. 
And uh, so I just want you to be praying about that. I want you to know that we are a part of an exciting time right now. And the exciting time is for the church not just to wander, meander through culture, but we have an opportunity to truly see God do some amazing things and to be a part of it in ways that maybe uh, we never truly felt that, that God would use us in that way. I, I am very excited. So please be praying for us. Be praying for Ken and I as we go kind of as ambassadors for our church. And, uh, and, and I'll continue to let you know how, how that all is, is coming together. Um, but again, please be praying for that. All right. Um, so I want to begin kind of how I began last week. <laughs> and that is that in the topic of holiness, I, I enter into this topic with a little bit of, of, of fear and trepidation because I am the last one to stand up and tell you, if you want to be holy, be just like me. <laughs> I'm the last person to do that. But as a pastor, there are times you have to teach on things in which Scripture says, of which you yourself have not yet quite attained to the level you would like to. Now, if any of you are in here and feel that you have attained a level of holiness that is better than everyone else, I want you to listen to this sermon again later, okay? <laughs> but I also want to come to this very humbly saying, this is not a topic for us to come to with arrogance or in looking down on others. This is a topic for us to come in humility, to recognize the grace God has given us, and also the calling in which he has put on our lives as we seek to follow Christ. So I want us just to, to, to enter into his presence humbly as we, we have already been doing, but I want you just to pray with me, and, and I want to just uh, lead us in a, a prayer um, and I want to take a few minutes, similar to last week, where you just have the opportunity to consider uh, what it looks like to be just humbly before a holy and righteous God. For me, that always leads me to a moment of repentance. It always leads me to recognizing the sin within my own life. While I've been forgiven of that sin, I still strive to overcome it and as I seek to be holy as, as God is holy. But let's just pray for a minute and then... Uh, have your own time as you speak to the Lord. Father, uh, God, I, we just come before you as a humble people, thankful for the gift of being able to worship together and that you are the object of our worship. God, I thank you that while broken, incomplete, imperfect, you have loved us, and shown us great mercy. You are worthy of all of the praise in which we have already given. All of the praise that we would ever give. You are alone are worthy. So Father, in these moments, not only do we want to give you all praise, glory, and honor that is due you, Father, we come confessing our sin in your midst. Recognizing that we are nothing without you. Thankful for Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And the power to walk out of the tomb. And to make us righteous within your eyes even though we ourselves have done nothing. 
I pray you would hear the confession of our own brokenness as we seek to follow you. Father, you are worthy. You are lovely. You are our treasure. Speak to us through your word. Help us to experience the life that you have called us to. Father, complete us in our search to be like Christ. Amen. All right. I want to very quickly take you through what we talked about last week. And I'm just going to, we're going to run through it. If you weren't here last week, you can go catch it on the podcast. I, I do want to give you just, I want to take you where we were. I want to just go real quickly through it. And I want to take you somewhere else this morning. Um, and I want you to stay with me. Okay. If you have questions, I want to hear questions and, uh, you know, if, if you struggle with this, I, I, I want to pray with you and, and help you through this as I, I go through this myself. Okay? Here's what we talked about last week. We gave a definition of holiness, simple holiness. In the Old Testament, Kadash. In the New Testament, Hagios. And it literally means of God or separate, apart, and therefore sacred or holy. Uh, it can also be defined as separate from human infirmity and purity and sin. We're talking about a separation from the world and of sin for God, with God, because of God. That is what holiness is. It is the pursuit of righteousness. Now, when we talk about love, it feels good to talk about love. When we talk about righteousness, we're not so sure because we all have bad experiences with people who are very interested in righteousness, right? Especially the self-made kind. So that it, it, we're always skeptical when we come to this. Um, there was a study that came out as far as pastors, how trustworthy are pastors. Pastors are, aren't coming towards the bottom of the list. And uh, we're going to talk about that here in a few minutes as well, because that's a part of the conversation of being righteous. So that is what holiness is. And what we saw last week is that God is completely and uniquely holy. He alone is completely and uniquely holy. Now, for those of you who are you know, you're, you're watching theology, you're making sure I'm sticking to the uh, scripture, God as three in one, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit are holy. They're all, but uniquely, we will never attain the amount or level of holiness that they have, yet we are called to pursue it. Revelation fifteen four says, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. We then said that God expects you to increasingly, important word, increasingly mimic his character 
of holiness. When I first experienced Christ to be real and true and I got to walk with him and I was forgiven for my sins and I knew I would be with him forever, I did not walk out of that moment changed in every aspect of my life. Though there was great change within me, great motivation to change, I still struggled with many of the same things and it is a process of growing. This is what sanctification is. It is the process of growing increasingly like Christ. So you may look at someone and think, well, they've got a lot farther to go than me. Well, maybe, (laughs) and maybe not. But it is why we can look at someone and we can say, I'm not sure they're there yet, and God is okay with that. Because you're not there yet, and God is okay with you as well. He wants us to increasingly mimic his character of holiness. Leviticus 19, 1 and 2 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It is an incredible call for, him to, to, for us to mimic his character. We also discussed last week that holiness is impossible on our own. That doesn't really need a lot of time. We recognize that. James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. We then describe that if holiness is impossible on our own, where does it come from? Jesus is the source of our holiness. We're going to talk a little more about this today. Colossians 1.22, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He has done this in his body and flesh by his death. So in other words, it is Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection, our repentance and our faith in him that brings us to being seen holy. And then we are called to increasingly uh, act out that holiness within our lives. We cannot do that on our own. We then went on to say holiness means that we are set apart for God and to pursue righteousness, importantly, as defined by God, not as defined by us. When we begin to redefine what righteousness is, we are moving into very dangerous territory. Scripture says anyone who tries to change God's word is going to incur severe judgment and wrath. We do not change it. We do not get to interpret it in the way that benefits us. While we will interpret it, To the best of our ability, it is as defined by God, not as defined by us. Romans 6, 18 and 19 says, Having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. All right, we talked a little bit about moralistic therapeutic deism. I don't want to go through all of this, but just to remind you, this is where I believe a lot of people who attend church every week fall into this understanding of faith, not what the gospel actually teaches. Five tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism, just for those of you who are paying attention, these are on version as well, if you want to look at these later. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Christians would say that's true. God exists, he created it, he ordered the world, he watches over it. We can all agree on that. Number two, tenet of moralistic therapeutic deism, God wants people to be good, nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. That is not what God says he wants. What God desires is worshipers and God desires for us 
to worship and to know him, to follow him, and to demonstrate him to the world around us. There's no other name by which we can be saved but the name of Jesus, and we are called to become more increasingly like Christ as we grow in our faith. Not just to be good, nice, and fair, although those certainly should be parts of what it means to follow Christ. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. This is the idolatry of self. I want to feel good. I want to be happy. I want to make sure my life is what I want it to be. And that does not, is not what it looks like to follow Christ. Our lives are not our own. This is, we'll have to have a, we'll talk about this in more depth another time. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Uh, in other words, God, I got this. If I need you, I'll let you know. That idea in and of itself is evil. It's evil. And yet embraced by a lot of people. Because what that says is, God, you don't matter. I do. God, your plans don't matter. Mine do. God, whatever you want to happen in the world doesn't matter. Except what benefits me. It is a very self-driven mindset that is totally against what it looks like to know God. And then number five, good people go to heaven when they die. No, Scripture tells us, well, there's no good people. So even if that were true, none of us would qualify. Instead, only those who know Christ have repented of their sins and have been covered by his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Why do I share that with you? Because there are a lot of people that believe spiritual things that are not true. Righteousness is all about what is true. Now, we live in a culture that does not desire for us to set boundaries of truth that are not self-defined. And the way we say that is, your truth is for you. My truth is for me. Don't impose your truth on me. And so when we do that, what we do is we take our community and we fracture it because we are all operating off different levels of truth. And when we do that, no one truly knows what is real and what is not. One of the greatest tools that you have in your life is knowing what is true and living in that way, even with, uh, when others deny that or disagree with you. It is one of the greatest gifts we have, and uh, it's one of the greatest uh, responsibilities we have to not only pursue truth, but to share it with others. Why is this important? Because Christianity is the only religion in which God the Creator came into our world. He's the only one that was incarnate among us, that walked with us, that entered into life with us, that acquainted, was acquainted with all of the things that we we're acquainted with, and yet he did not sin, and he gave his life for us. Of all the other religions out there, there are none like Christ. All right? That's where we've been. Now, this is where I want us to go. Two main things I want us to kind of finish up this conversation with, and that is, uh, what does it really look like to pursue righteousness, and how do we attain it? The natural question that's going to come out of this is, if we are made righteous by Christ, does it really matter how I live? 
So let's kind of dive in, and I want to start in Acts chapter 17, verse 22. This is uh, one of Paul's often quoted sermons where he is addressing the Oropagus, and he just basically spells out many of those things for us in these few verses. So let's, uh, Acts 17, verse 22 says this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, as we read through this, Paul is, is walking through the community, seeing all of these idols, because a, a very telltale sign of, of religiosity at this time was that you wanted to make sure you had all your bases covered. So if someone had a God and they felt like that God was the God, there was nothing wrong with you just saying, okay, well, I'll worship that one too. The more I worship, the more my bases are covered, the more I'm okay. And so this kind of fragmented religiosity had grown such to the point where they wanted to make sure they really covered everything. So they not only had idols for all of the gods in which they were trying to appease, just in case one of them was true, they had an altar set up for the one that they didn't yet know about because they didn't want to leave him out in case there was somebody more powerful, more important for their future. And so they were worshiping him. Now, was this really the uh, God of you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or, or, you know, who, it doesn't really matter. The point is not that they really understood who God was in that moment. The point was that Paul sees on an opportunity to teach them about the one they don't yet know about. And as he begins to teach them what he is basically saying to us, and it is the center point for us to put our faith in God. It is the center point for us to pursue his righteousness. And it is the center point for us to understand truth is that God is defined by who he is, not by who we say he is. Now, this is an important distinction. And I don't want to get too academic today, although I feel like I may get a little academic on you. This is an important concept. If you don't take away anything else from today than this, God is defined by who he is, not by who we say he is. Now, you are in a time where you can define your own reality. You can kind of create your own reality. One of the ways you create your own reality is you only hang around with people that are just like you and see the world just like you. You can pretend the rest of the world doesn't exist. We can often talk about God in ways that make him the object of what we want him to be, not the object of who he is. Have you ever had someone in your life that wanted you to be something other than who you are for them? Doesn't that feel good? Don't you enjoy those people? You feel like, I trust you, I'm with you, and I, you, know, you are with me? And in many of those relationships, we end up walking away broken and bruised because we cannot live our lives if we're solely trying to meet someone's expectations. We are who we are. God is who he is. I can tell him he's somebody else. Doesn't change that. 
I can pretend he's something else. Doesn't change that. I can read scripture and say, I don't like that. I don't like that about God. I'm going to pretend that's not true. That does not change what is true. We have a grand illusion in the world today that we can determine what is and is not true. And in the end, we are going to give an account for what is true, not for what we wanted to be true. God is who he is. And not who we say he is. We go on in in verse 26. Paul says this. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Let me read that again. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward Him, and find Him. So what is God wanting from us? He's wanting us to what? Seek Him and find Him. Not just seek him, because we can seek stuff and never find it. And that's frustrating. There are times we, we have done egg hunts. We called them the great egg hunt for years that we would do in the park. And we would go behind a park on a big hill and let adults go back there and you know try to avoid the ER for some of them. We would hide eggs, and it was interesting. We did it a few years in a row. We would come back the next year, and we would find eggs left from the last year. <laughs> it's like grody eggs. Like, who wants that, you know? But we would go and we would seek and we would have these prize eggs. If you found the prize egg, you got something special, like, you know, a gift card or something. And inevitably, the prize eggs would be hidden the best, and then there would be a prize egg that was not found. And so adults would seek and seek, and after a while, adults give up on the stuff like that. And then the kids come in and they seek and seek and seek. God's goal is not that we seek and never find. Our goal, his goal for us is that we seek him and we find him. That is what he desires for you. It's what he desires for me. It's what he desires for us. For in him... Oh, I'm, I lost my spot. Here we go. And Okay, there was my spot. Verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, again, God is who he is not who we imagine him to be. If we're going to come to him and worship, if we're going to follow him, if we're going to understand his word, this has to be the very baseline foundation for which we come, and that is that that we cannot imagine God to be any different than he is and still be right. And we can imagine him in any way that we want to, but it doesn't mean that anything's going to happen, that he's real, that we have a relationship with him, that we're going to know him forever forever. It does not mean that anything is going to happen. But he desires for us to seek him and to find him. We are his offspring. 
Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear you again about this. But Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius and Aropagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Just in verses 30 and 31, three things you see that are crucial for us understanding holiness and how we attain it. Number one, we are called to repent. And this is not a fun word. This is not fun to talk about. There are lots of other things that we enjoy talking about in the church. Repentance is not until you understand the power of repentance. But we are called to repent. If you go back and you read the Gospels, you'll find that when John was talking about the coming of this good news, do you remember how his message went? It began with what? Repent. Go back and look at Jesus beginning his ministry. The very first time Jesus is recorded talking about this coming good news that is happening because he is here, he says, repent. When you read throughout the New Testament, you find no matter how far out you get from the church, there's a constant call to repent. When you begin to read Revelation and you see the letters to the seven churches, you'll find that on five of those seven letters, you're going to find that the vision John has in seeing Christ was the central message, which was repent. Repentance is crucial for us experiencing God, walking with God, and pursuing holiness. Second, God is going to judge every person based on his expectation of righteousness. This is what scripture tells us. He has fixed a day, verse 31, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. I don't know what that day is going to look like. But I know my life. You probably know your life. I'm not sure I want to stand before him on his definition of righteous. Do you? I mean, I think I do pretty good. And then I talk to my mom, right? And she shows me where I could have done a little better or a lot better in some instances. You know, I think I'm okay. And then someone comes along and says, yeah, you're not okay. And so if I'm going to stand before God and he is the judge and it is his distinction of what is righteous and what is not righteous, That makes me stand up and interested in what God says about this. Because as much as we want to think about heaven, as much as we want to think about forgiveness, and as much as we want to think about grace and mercy, those are all very true, real things that are important to God and should be important to us. We also have to recognize there is coming a time where judgment is coming. We will be judged, not on my understanding of righteousness. I do this with Malia all the time. I tell Malia she's done something she shouldn't have done. She tries to convince me I am wrong. I don't know if y'all have a child like that. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Uh, most people don't have any other children after they have a child like that. I will tell you that right now. It's like, yep, this is it. We're done. No more. She'll argue with me. Tell me how what she did was actually okay. And I should have been okay with what she wanted to do. 
And that conversation, she's five, so that conversation doesn't go very far. I mean, I try not to get too embedded in it because you're going to lose against a five-year-old pretty much every time. But we don't get to do that with God. I don't get to say, God, yeah, but you know, when I look at what you have instructed us to do, I do not find that it is consistent with a law of love. And therefore, I have rejected that right out. God does not go, you know, I, that, hmm, I really didn't think that through. You're right. Now, I can approach a lot of things in life. When it's time to buy a new car, I know how to whittle leader down. I start with what is true, and then I move to what may not actually be true, but I can convince her it is until we have the car I wanted to get, right? <laughs> Y'all don't do that, do you? Deidre, she just eventually comes to the moment where she says, just get what you want. And I, amen, brother. Now, my, the car is nice. Uh, you know, marriage needs some work after that. So uh, don't, don't, don't copy me on that. That's not good marital advice. But I can't do that with God. I want to be able to do that with God. I want to be able to reason, and your reason is so crucial. It is important. It is a gift from God because you are made in the image of God to be able to reason, to do that creatively, to think through information, to process, and to use it in a way that is helpful in the world. That is a gift by God, from God, for you to use. Reason is, is wonderful. It's part of what makes us people. But when we use reason to justify ourselves before God so that we can ignore God's righteousness, then we are headed for a very big fall. And so we do not have the freedom in which to say, God, this is the way I think it should be. That is not how God operates. And when we stand before him, we are going to have to give an account on how we have lived our lives. Now, I want to be very careful that we don't take that into the self-righteous zone of that means I need to act just right. And I honor God when I do everything just right. And it's my job to tell you when you're not. I'm helping you. That always feels like help, doesn't it? One, we are called to repent. Repent literally means to turn away from one way into another. It doesn't mean that you... Repentance does not necessarily mean that I I, I sin, I recognize my sin, I never sin in that manner again. But it means you recognize I need to turn, I need to change, I need to stop this. I need to put other things within my life in place so that I don't continue in that direction for whatever that direction is for you. The second thing is God is going to judge every person based on his expectation of righteousness, not mine. And third, our righteousness is only available through Jesus. This is so important. Because we do all know someone and maybe we are the someone who finds it their mission in life to tell everyone where they're wrong, what they're doing wrong, how they should be better, how they would do something differently. And it leads us to that self-righteous place of saying it is all about our works and is not about faith. Verse 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by all raising him from the dead. It is by Christ alone that we can escape his judgment. It is one of his greatest gifts. Can I just say 
we probably ought to spend a whole day just here and understanding this more fully. Because the reality is that we are not made righteous by being holy. I do not want you to leave here thinking that. You are not made righteous by your attempts to do everything just right. You are not made righteous because you have a Ten Commandment magnet on the back of your car or a fish decal on the back of your car. You are not made righteous because you had fewer sins than other people. Now, there are a lot of people that would, ne- they would never say that they believe that, but they do live as if that were true. I've had friends in which they were not believers, and I would talk to them about faith. And they inevitably knew someone who was a really bad Christian in their eyes. And they would say, well, gosh, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I'm fine. Because they're a terrible person. And yet that is not how this works. Righteousness is not our ability in order to do holy things. I go to church enough. I pray enough. I show myself to be humble enough. I give enough. That is not what it looks like to be righteous. We are made righteous only by one person and one person alone, and that is Jesus Christ. That is it. However, how we pursue righteousness will determine whether or not we truly know Jesus. So there's a distinction here that is an important distinction. It is not your works of holiness that make you righteous, but it is your righteousness that drives you to holiness. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is simply this. You're not going to go out and do enough good things that God says, you're a great person. You've done awesome. You have done everything just right. You don't need Jesus. It's never going to happen. But at the same time, if we live our lives thinking that I can do whatever I want, I can act in whatever way I want, I can twist the scriptures in whatever way that makes me okay just the way I am, and I don't ever have to think about righteousness again, the question is, do you really know Christ at that point? That leads us to a place of asking the question, are we exempt from living holy lives because of Jesus? And there are many that would say yes. And I would say Absolutely not. We aren't made righteous by being holy. We are made righteous through repentance and faith in Christ. But in doing that, we recognize that He has a way of living life, and we are committing ourselves to His way. When we read through Scripture, we recognize that He's laying out for His disciples and us as well a way of living life. And if your interest in following the way of Christ determines your interest in actually knowing Christ. So if you live a life uninterested in following the way of Christ, it is impossible that you know Christ. That is not understood by many in the church today. The way of Christ is what he is calling us to. When we repent, we're repenting of the lives that we're living our own way. And we recognize he has a better way. That means that is what we are pursuing. His righteousness leads to a better way. And that is where we're going. That's where we're headed. And that's what we believe we should do. If we don't desire to live out God's holiness, I mean, you have not come to a place of recognizing that your way of holiness is not as good. 
and you have not repented from it and pursued his instead. Does that make sense? All right. So are we exempt from living holy lives in Jesus? Because of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6. I just want us to walk through this kind of briefly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it's important because Paul is talking about, in this example, um, pulling all these things that we're talking together into to one sin in particular, which often is called out in Scripture, and that is sexual immorality, sexual sin. And this is what Paul is teaching to the Corinthian church. This is what he says. I want you to listen to what he says through this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. In other words, there's coming a time we will not need to eat. (laughs) We're not going to be sustained by the food in which we eat. That time is not here yet, but that time is coming. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord... And will also raise uh, us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, let that sink in. You as a person who recognizes the value of Christ, recognizes that I need to repent and follow his way, recognizes that our sin has, has chained us to a way of living life that causes chaos, hurt, and pain, and an eternity without Him. If you have come to that place and you recognize, I need Christ, He is my sufficiency, He is my righteousness, He is my holiness, He is my God, my Savior, then you come to a place where you are actually a part of Christ. Not that you are just known as a Christian, you actually are united with Christ. Your body, Christ's body, are united. This is significant in that in other world religions, this does not happen. He is saying, we are becoming one. So watch what you do with your life. Watch what you do with your body. Wherever, whatever you're doing, you're bringing to Christ. Watch how you live. Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Verse 17 says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I want you to imagine just for a moment that you are one spirit with Christ. Do you ever feel alone? Do you ever feel like you're doing this all on your own? you ever feel like I'm trying, but it's just not happening? Or maybe I've made God mad and he's not with me? Maybe if I just did better, then all of a sudden uh, God would love me again or God would care about what's going on in my life. Maybe he would hear my prayers. Have you ever think those things? I think a lot of people do. I sometimes think those things. But what Paul is teaching us here is that whenever you begin to follow Christ, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you have become one spirit with Christ. Let that sink in. Now, there is nowhere that says he will rip that spirit away from you. 
You are one spirit with Christ. You are one body with Christ. We are brought into the church, not just Journey Church, but the church that has ever been or ever will be. We are brought into one body together. One spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one Savior. We're all brought together to be unified together with Him. He goes on in this particular sin, although we could use any number of other sins as a descriptor. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Verse 19 says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now, interestingly, he's been talking in the singular voice this whole passage in 1 Corinthians until he gets to the word your. And the, the word your is plural. In other words, he's talking to a community of people, talking about their individual choices, their individual lives. But then when he comes to verse 10, he then switches and he's talking about the whole church together. Because not only are you joined with Christ, you are joined with all other believers to make up his body. Do you not know that your, the church's body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I want you just to imagine the privilege and the honor it is to be joined with Christ. Perfect. No one could love on the face of the planet like Jesus. Fully God, fully man, who chose to come and take the penalty of sin from you and from me, from us. And he bore that through his broken body, being put on a cross because of his great love for us. You are united with him. What a privilege and an honor. And when we are united with Christ, that should drive us to a place of saying, not only do I want to know him, not only do I not want to spend time with him, but I want to mimic him. I want to walk in his ways. I want other people to see how good he is. I want other people to see what it's like to escape all the trenches of the world, all the muck that we were stuck in that we get free from. I want other people to see it. And I want them to know that Christ is full for them. Christ loves them and is with them. And he did all of this for them too. And they have an opportunity to know him and to walk with him and to be with him for all of eternity. I want people to know that. What a privilege and an honor that is. And so how would we perhaps not become united with a prostitute, but perhaps some other sin within our lives in which we love a little bit more than Christ? don't really want to give it up because I just enjoy it just a little too much. I don't know how my life would look like without it. He's talking about the whole church. He's not just talking about the truth of what the church is. He's also talking about the ministry of, of the church to the world. And if we're honest, the church is struggling right now. The church is really struggling. Pastor after pastor is being forced to leave their ministry for indiscretions. Whether it be financial, 
sexual, cheating on spouses. In this past year, perhaps the most visible person that led to churches like Journey had to leave his church for indiscretions in the way that he pastored his church, Bill Hybels at Willow Creek. If you're not familiar with the story, it's an ugly story. An ugly story that should have been caught, should have been seen years ago, but wasn't. And it wasn't seen because the ugly little sin of the church that we don't ever talk about, although it's not little, is that if you can grow a church, if you can build facilities, if you can get lots of people to come in and you can raise lots of money, we will overlook your personal indiscretions. That is a sin of the church. I just read an article yesterday. Another pastor repeatedly raped a minor. Just arrested. This happens all the time. My inbox, my email inbox is filled with people who want me to sign up for their church consulting. And I know many of these consultants. And I'm, I'm embarrassed by how many of these consultants are trying to teach churches how to do ministry that had to leave their ministry because they had an affair with their secretary. My inbox is full of their emails. Now, can they be forgiven? Yes. Is redemption possible? Yes. But the sin of the church is that we sometimes value something other than walking with Christ in his righteousness. And that is our own benefits. And in the church, this is a problem that's continuing to grow. We have pastors who believe that if I could have a jet, I could be with God and I could preach more effective sermons and reach the world with it. Egos are out of control. I stand before you as an ego that has been crushed by God, not as a man without an ego. (laughs) Every time my ego gets a little bit bigger, he shows me how messed up I am. Without the grace of God to show me how messed up I am, my ego would be out of control. I get to stand up here and talk about God. I had to stand up here and tell you how it's supposed to be. It's by the grace of God, he's constantly working on me. I'm not immune to these possibilities. I'm not immune for being uh, the next headline in the news somewhere. But the reality is that the church is sick. The church has problems. We, I was listening to Tony Evans this week. And if you don't know who Tony Evans, Tony Evans is an African-American pastor. He's pretty popular and incredible, incredibly powerful speaker. And he says, the problem with what has happened in the church in America is that we have pursued personal righteousness outside of biblical justice. You know what that means? That means I'm looking to do everything right by the way I do them, but I'm not concerned with how the actions of others are affected. And in his example, that's why you can build a big church and keep your job and keep all the black people out. You can segregate the church and yet still be seen as a successful pastor. 
Now, why am I saying this? There are some people that believe you shouldn't talk about churches. You shouldn't talk about bad stuff in churches. And I just have to say, well, Jesus didn't take that stance. <laughs> I mean, he's the one who sat in the corner and fashioned a whip and let him have it. I mean, I, I haven't come to that, that yet. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But the church is sick. Bill Hybels is someone I've looked up to for a long time. This last year has been hard for me to watch his fall. And yet he brought a woman his own age to live in his own house. With he and his wife. Who was there with him alone when his wife was out of town. Who didn't step in and say, this is probably not a good idea. Allegations came one after the other, after the other, after the other. Oh, we don't believe it. Oh, we don't believe it. Oh, we don't believe it. You see, the church is losing its influence in the world, not because the gospel isn't powerful, not because God isn't real, not because God isn't still redeeming people from the pit of hell. The church is losing influence in the world because we preach about a a, a righteousness that we ourselves are not pursuing. And if we ourselves are not going to pursue it, how can we point anybody else to him and say, he is the truth, he is the light, he is the rescuer for us. And so we have to come to a place where we have to understand what is the difference between me recognizing I am a sinful, broken person who have so far to go in my pursuit of holiness within my own life. And yet I have to hold up a standard of righteousness because this is what Jesus does. Because I am united with him in body. I am united with him in spirit. And if I go out and live in the world like it just doesn't matter, I can just do whatever. I can just ignore this part of Scripture. Guess what the world says about the gospel? It's not real. It's not real. And I point back to what I read earlier. There's coming a day when we will stand in Him before judgment. If I'm going to be judged, I want to at least know that I'm on His scale, not my own. It is with fear and trepidation that I approach him and say, I am not worthy. But we as the church have to again hold the reins of what is true and right in his life. Understand this though, we do not have to force it on anyone else. This is also what part of the church's sin. When we have taken his righteousness and we have tried to shove it down the throats of people who don't want it, just further convincing them this is not the God for them. We cannot shove it down their throats. We tried to do that. And I recognize this is a complex issue. Remember, simple, not simplistic. I realize this is a complex issue, and this is, it's hard to know the right things to do whenever you're faced with a world that says there should be no boundaries on anything. Absolute personal freedom to do everything. I will just tell you the thing that I fear the most that drives me to understand his scripture and recognize some people are just not going to like me for what I believe to be true, right, and good. I have to recognize that God has already set those parameters and I'm going to be judged by him whether I stayed with them or I created my own. When the world is constantly telling me you have to give up the boundaries, you have to, own, you have to let everybody do whatever they want so they feel loved, you can do whatever you want. You can. But you can't know Jesus and do that. Jesus didn't tell us, go out and show everybody how they're wrong. 
He went out and said, show everybody that I love them. But as I look at my children and I see them when, they will, when they're starting to walk into a path that I know, ooh, that's, oh, that's, there's pain at the end of that path. Because you know what that's like. You've experienced that. I've experienced There's pain at the end of that path. I want to I hedge it off for them. I don't want them to move into that area of pain. That's exactly what God is doing with us when he teaches us what is good and what is right and what is just and what is his way. And when we say to someone else, if that's what you want, go for it. God's okay with it. Then we are just telling them, go and experience pain. Miss Jesus. All right, I didn't mean to say all that stuff. (laughs) But uh, I felt like I should. Let me wrap up with this. Holiness is a calling to be set apart with God and pursuing His righteousness. That is what holiness is. We're trying to get back to our basic building blocks. Our basic building blocks of holiness. You're called to be set apart with God and pursuing His righteousness. Notice pursuing, not attaining. Pursuing. You attain His righteousness because of Christ. You are not going to have to get to a place of holiness for you to be accepted and loved by God. You have that because of Jesus Christ. If you repent and accept Him, it is a great gift in which He has given us. It is, a, it is the beautiful gift of, of His mercy. But now that we are with Him, we are called to mimic Him and we are called to, be, to pursue Him in righteousness. 1 Peter 1, 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that, you will be, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, think about that which is coming as we do escape judgment because of Christ and experience eternity with Him. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but also He who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We should set our hope fully on him. He has called us to be holy in all of our conduct. I will tell you, for me, I have personally chosen to pursue holiness. And I regularly fail. (laughs) Regularly. I hope, I believe, each time I get a little better. Part of kind of crucifying, denying myself, bearing that cross, following him. I, I get better. And, and each time I have the same experience where I'm like, gosh, yes, this is, I'm, this is why he says this. Because it brings completion and fullness and hope and joy in life. All those other things that I held on to so tightly, they just bring discouragement, frustration, brokenness. If you're going to pursue holiness, it's going to put you at odds with some people. It's just going to. If you, if you think, oh, no, I think there's a way you can do it and not be at odds with people, I would just say, look at Jesus' life. 
No one loved as well as Jesus. And yet he was rejected, acquainted with grief. His body was broken. People hated him. It's going to put you at odds with people. There were times my own personal pursuit of holiness, it, it, it breaks relationships with people I care about. And I don't like that. It hurts. Because what I want is to just enjoy people and for them to enjoy me and for us just to do life together and, and enjoy it. <laughs> But there are times the pursuit of holiness is going to break those relationships. Understand that when they do, they're not actually rejecting you as much as they're rejecting the Christ in you. And ultimately, I want to experience myself and I want others to experience the freedom and the glory of just walking with God in truth and in holiness and in righteousness. There is great joy in me. Whenever I know that he looks down and says, well done. There was joy in me when I know I'm aligning my life with him. I'm aligning my ways with him. Simple holiness means to increasingly follow the way of Christ until we see him in heaven. Again, simple, not simplistic. And I would leave you finally with Colossians 3, 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May we do everything we do in his name. I want to pray with you. If you would like to, if you would like to come and pray, you can come and pray just by yourself. You can, um, we have others that will be willing to come up and pray with you. You just need to worship. Maybe this is a moment of confession. Maybe this is a moment of triumph. Thanking God for the triumph that you have through Christ. Whatever this moment is. We give God the glory for loving us so much. Sending his son that in the midst of our sin. He has rescued us. Father. God I pray in the search for holiness. I pray that you would just forgive us when we fail. God, I pray that you would show us a better way. Father, I pray that you would just remove our own self-righteousness, the desire to judge others, to force your teachings down their throat when that is not your way. Your way is to stand at the door and knock. And if they open the door, then you're, you will come in. And if they choose not to, you will not force your way in, nor should we try to force you into anyone's heart. But God, let us see what is true and right and just. Let us not turn a blind eye to others who are hurt because we ourselves are unaffected. Let us not pursue personal righteous at the at the sacrifice of biblical justice. Father, let us be known as a people who love, but also let us be known as a people who know the truth and reveal the truth rather than perpetuate lies. 
The issues that we are facing in the world are so complex, so numerous. Father, I pray rather than us trying to fix the world, we will simply fix our eyes on you. Rather than becoming overwhelmed with the sin that we see, we would be overwhelmed with the sin in our own hearts, in our own lives, so that we can confess that and we can be forgiven. Father, I pray that we would be good representatives of who you are. We have become one with you in body and spirit. Let us live that way. God, as we fail in the pursuit of holiness, give us hope that you are drawing us to a place of continued growth. Father, help us to be holy as you are holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.